This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? All right, everybody. You are with the Power Producers Podcast. Today, we have Brad Rosenkild from RNA Insurance up in Maryland. Brad, what's going on, man? Hanging in there, my man. Staying COVID-free, enjoying the uh, the free state up here in Maryland and uh, doing the insurance game. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't even know what to believe about COVID anymore because if you watch what the news says, it's running rampant in Tampa right now or in Florida right now, yet... There's other studies that say the exact opposite. So who knows? It's it's crazy. All I know is it's been good for business for us because we didn't have to adapt to any technology. Everything was plug and play. So we made the transition to working remote and all of that pretty easily. Yeah, we did the same. Um, we were fortunate enough to kind of have that system already in place for some of our large upper middle market clients that are regionally dispersed across the mid-Atlantic and it's been allowing us to plug and play that that model down market. You know, we, we, we do quarterly board meeting reviews with some of our high-level clients. Um, and most of that's remote through uh, Zoom teams of prior to COVID. So it was uh it wasn't a, it wasn't a shock at all that it, that most agencies have struggled with that I've seen. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and your agency and give them the 10,000. My good friend, Scott Howell says, take me in your DeLorean back a few decades, however you're going to do it. Um, give them the backstory. <laughs> yeah. Um, as long as we got the flux capacitor at full blast, I'll be able to go back in 1987 when we started. I was a year old. My uh, uncle and father started our firm. Um, coming out of a large letter house up in the Baltimore market, um, and Baltimore was booming back then, man, mid-80s, uh, big business. That's, yeah, that's when they were building the whole Harbor District out and everything. Yeah. Right? It was really starting to get cooking. And that's what that's what they were. They were an agency that was uh, rocking and rolling at the same, at the clip. And um, my dad and uncle kind of looked at one another like, you know, we're bringing, we're bringing so much revenue. We're doing, we're, we're bringing in um, such fantastic accounts in this place. Why don't we go do it ourselves and, and take that? So they did, fortunately enough. In 87, I was born in 86, I'm 34, and they took uh, IDOTs in their house. It's an old indemnity deed of trust, got a loan, started the place with a dialer and a phone book. And um, after watching that 
grow during uh, during my adolescence and my formidable years. I um, got out of high school, decided to uh, go to college, went to college for a semester, got my insurance license. Hmm. Um, I had huge aspirations, guys, to go and be an attorney. You know, I, I, I always had like this this uh, this mentality that like that would be like the precipice, like that would be like the apex of to be a lawyer. Um, so I, I, I was going to take my LSATs, um, had it all planned out, wanted to go that route. Um, I wasn't really a good student, but I was a good communicator. So I'm like, I can do this. You know, I can if I can get through law school, I can probably be a pretty decent attorney. So I worked a summer for my father and my uncle's um, marketing and selling insurance, straight commission. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved just building relationships with people and had a couple claims come in and realized that I hate lawyers and I just didn't want to be an attorney because they were still my clients. Right. So I, um, just stayed in the industry. Uh, that was probably, Oh, eight or nine. I went full time, full bore into it and, um, haven't looked back. We, uh, were an agency, very, um, I know it's kind of like a catchphrase now, like the term boutique, but I would say that we, we do really, favor that type of model. We we focus on very few industry verticals, but the verticals we serve are subject matter experts in. And um, we really focus on it. And those, those unique markets are towing and recovery, um, waste collection, processing, and municipal solid waste, wholesale food and durable goods distributing. And we also have an auto services and hospitality practice. We also have a separate function in our firm managed by one of my partners of construction base. So we've got six verticals. I want to come back to the verticals, but I, I do think it's interesting that almost everyone that we talk to, no one necessarily like intended to get into insurance. It just kind of happened. So it makes me feel like the people who intend to get into insurance, it's like, <laughs> is there something is there something wrong with them? Or like like what like how does it you know, I, I just think that's funny. I, I've noticed that in basically everybody that we've talked to, Dave. Every single one, every yeah. single conversation, people did something else. Yeah. And it's like we're the land of misfit toys here. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. I have a funny, a funny story for that. Um, when I was in, I had my fifth grade yearbook and I looked back into it when I moved um, about six months ago and I found it in my old basement of my house. And my wife and I were looking at it and I opened it and it was what people wanted to be when they grew up. And I don't even remember this. And I have a very vivid memory. I wrote down I wanted to be a professional soccer player and an insurance guy. <laughs> I guess it was from like my dad. Like I had no idea what my dad did. I had no idea. I guess it was one of those things. Yeah, he's an insurance I quickly, guy. <laughs> yeah, I quickly lost the insurance guy mentality when I got into uh, high school and college. And it wasn't a sexy job. It wasn't a sexy career. But then when you, right. when you, when you get into it though, like when you really pull the pull the layers back off that onion and get to the core of what we do, it's actually a pretty sexy job. I mean, we get ingratiated and ingrained in our uh, our clients' businesses. You know, we're we're experts at a lot of different things that, that people overlook. But yeah, nobody wanted to, nobody would would pick this. I don't right. think. You know, if they knew what it was, but it's yeah. Cool. No, nobody walks up to the insurance stand at the career fair. It's like <laughs> you know, that one gets get skipped over. So you know, how did you, the, go ahead, Dave? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny though because 
literally like everybody that we talked to didn't mean to get into it, but I, I agree with what Brad said. It's a, if you're a, a, a middle market commercial producer, that's a sexy job, man. I don't care. I'll go on record and say that if you're an alpha, you're going to be hard pressed to find a better job. You know, you get everything that you live for at that point, right? You have the ability to create your own destiny. You have the ability to make as much money as you want, as long as you want to put the work in to do it. And it's it's a reasonable chunk of change. And I would even tell you that if you're a really, really good middle market producer, you're making more than an attorney every year anyhow. No doubt. With no way less stress. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and the thing is, so for me, I had a similar path in mind. I wanted to be an attorney as well, and I was actually accepted to a couple of law schools while I was still in the grocery business. And I sat down and I looked at it and I thought about how much I was going to have to spend to go to law school, how much time I was going to have to spend working full time, then going to law school, then studying for law school, and then coming out with, you know, passing the bar and all of that, and how many hours I was going to have to put in as an attorney. It's really like the example of the two brothers that Dave Ramsey uses with the compound interest, right? I think the way the story goes is if you have two brothers and one of them's 20 and one of them is 30 and they each invest $1,000 a year, the one who invests from the time he's 20 to the time he's 30 invests $1,000 a year or whatever the deal is, regardless the other guy starts and goes from 30 to 60 and the guy who invested early in his career at 20 to 30 had more money at the end when they're ready to retire because of the way compound interest works. And I know I just butchered that and that's fine. I'll, I'll still be loved by my wife and kids, but where I, where I was headed with that is I looked at it and I'm like, you know what? I'm already making well over a hundred thousand dollars a year, what I'm doing. So for me to step back or even quit that job to go to law school, by the time I retired, I would actually have been behind if I would have gone into a, being an attorney that if I just stayed even at the level I was at running a, a reasonably high volume grocery store. And I just said, I'm not going to do it. Then I realized, okay, 90 hours a week sucks. What can I do? And that's how I got into commercial insurance. But I think that it's interesting. I, I would be interested to see how many people, if we asked the question, did you ever have aspirations of going into law school? And they're successful commercial producers. If there's a correlation there between people that are wired to go be attorneys and think that would be a sexy job, but then they ended up doing this. I think no there's doubt. a correlation. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I'm, I like the gravitas of saying insurance is a sexy job. I mean, look what we do, right? We're, we're, we're risk managers. We're, we're armchair attorneys, we're armchair CPAs, we're armchair financial planners, and we're armchair therapists. I mean, we're, we're so ingrained at the highest level of our policyholders' needs that we're, and, and what they what they really do every day. You know, we, we get to learn from the C-suite down to the middle management, down to the employee, all the way down. And, and I think just getting and, and diving in, especially middle market, upper middle market clientele, you know, that's what they need, and, and to have and to be that empathetic, resolute, uh, compassionate advocate for them is just is, is something that I I think is a definitely a second job. I agree with that. I think once you drill down, it's it's all of those things that you just mentioned on the surface. It's it may seem boring, but um, you know once you get into it, there's a ton of different ways that you can, um, y- you know, d- different avenues that you can go. 
Yeah, I never have a boring day ever. Right. <laughs> Dude, if you knew my day to day, you'd be like, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I do it. You know, yeah. you're up at seven thirty on conference calls. You're talking to lawyers. You're talking to claims adjusters. You're talking to new prospects. You're talking to current clients. And then, and then the rat race ends at you know nine thirty at night. You lay your pillow, your head down on the pillow, and you're passed out for four hours. You know, one of those things. It's a career that you get a lot of fulfillment if you put in a lot of hard work. Yeah. So you've got the different niches. How long have those been in existence? Is that something that your dad and uncle started as quick as the agency was born? Or we were talking to somebody about this yesterday. Was there a point of inflection? Because it seems like when we talk to people that have built successful vertical markets, they started out as generalists and then they realized, okay, there's opportunity here. There's opportunity here. There's opportunity here. They start getting into those verticals. At what point did, I mean, I'm interested as to what the sort of the background story of that is. So, yeah. Um, and I'm probably going to be putting my, uh, my partner's uncle, my father in blast, but I'm going to tell you the truth. When we started, we were a small generalist, personal line, small commercial agency. Um, up until uh, when, you know, that 0809 mark, we were still in that, in that flux of small mom and pop, Main Street retail guy. And um, personality-wise, I tend to kind of go against the grain. I just took my Colby A test for my, and I've taken it before. I'm like, my it's I'm, I'm one of those fast starters, like to the max. I'm a number nine, and and I don't know if the psychology behind it is relevant, but I think it does play a toll. That you know, I went in and I'm like, is is status quo acceptable? Um, the, the answer would probably be yes, you know, I've afforded a good life for my family, but is, is his status quo ideal? And I was like, you know, I kind of want to go against the grain. I want to do some stuff a little different. You know, I see a lot of guys at carrier meetings and functions that are, that are, that are, you know, providing value added consultative services to large clients. And I'm like, I want to be that guy. You know, that's what I want to envision. Um, and, and, and it was more for my own enrichment. And we kind of, Sat down. We had a, we had, we were at a crossroads. So in about 20, 2009, late 2009, we were in a board meeting, having a sales meeting. And this was back when we had four producers. We were all writing personal line and small commercial, rating them ourselves, writing it ourselves. And at the sales meeting, my uncle and dad were sitting there and I, I raised my hand. And it kind of changed. It changed a lot. I said, guys, I want to do, I want to focus on transportation. I want to focus on high casualty transportation based risks. And there was a silence, an awkward silence for about 30 seconds, like maybe not quite that long. It felt like an eternity. And my uncle and father looked at me and said, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. We're not doing it. We don't know anything about it. We don't have the expertise. It's not something that we want to have our agency go in that direction. And I said, well, then maybe I have to find another place. Meeting ended. We, uh, and to alleviate all the drama, probably about two days later, they came back and said, Brad, we'll support you. Do what you want to do. We'll support you 100%. And I just got ingrained in it. Um, I, I went to a couple of good family friends that were in the industry in the towing and recovery space. And they were, they really took me under their wing. I got to learn the intricacies of their businesses the risks that they face every day. And I um, went to a couple of carrier partners and, and built out a program well. And the, you know, the, the, my wings were, 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 were spread. Or, you know, you're, 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 you're flying, running and gunning. And 
And I started to just amass um, clients in that vertical, which then translated into other verticals with the waste hauling space and stuff like that. You know, towing companies, getting into the towing companies was such a huge outlet because they service the vast majority of all the transportation based rests, you know, they're, they're towing broken down stuff. And those guys introduced me to industry leaders and market makers in those segments and those segments flourished. And, um, I would say that was really the point. It was around that 2009, 2010 mark where we started to get traction in the transportation. We were always had a construction contracting practice, but it really blossomed into a construction practice, um, probably around that 2012 mark. And it, it's still, it's just, we look to focus on niche markets because we've watched how it can help a middle market agency grow. And, and it, it, it's something that we find a lot of pride in and success in building out best in class products for a certain industry segment. If I missed this part, forgive me, but what made you decide to, to get like, like to go the transportation route? Was it because you knew you know, had some family friends in that industry or um, were you doing some research on it? Like what kind of triggered that? So yeah, good question. It was more along, um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to focus on something I had interest in and I'm a, I like, I like cars, I like trucks. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm into vehicles. I, I, I just, I like that naturally. The other element was I wanted to go after, I was early on in my career, I realized the time value of money and I realized what I was doing in personal lines. I was spinning my wheels, uh, and, and I was I was very successful in bringing in personal insurance, quoting it, issuing, binding it. But I felt like my time was more valuable than a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars per totally. client. And I just I felt that deep down. And I said, you know, I have to go after a class of business that I that I have that I have an affinity for that will allow me to generate the commission revenue per account that's going to be worth the time, as well as uh, a market that I have a sphere of influence in. And, and that's kind of how it happened. My grandfather was in the trucking and paving business, um, very, very tight with Eastern Baltimore County. He was really tied in with that market. So some of his friends were were the, the best in the biz, man. They were the, the big guys. They were the guys that everybody wanted. And then I called all those relationships. And there were times, you know, I'm not too proud to admit it, that my grandfather would get on the phone call and be like, have a meeting with my grandson. And I leaned on him. And, and he was, he since passed uh, uh, two years ago, but he was a big motivator in, in motivating me to, to take that step. And not a lot of people know, like I talked to my granddad before I had that conversation with my father and uncle. And he told me like, you know, you can do this. You know, he can motivate you. You know, he motivated me to do it. And that's kind of the backstory. It's, it's one of those hokey kind of emotional ones, but it, uh, it, it's, it's real. It's what, it's what I live, what I have, what I have. So you decide you're going to go into transportation. You've got somebody in your family that has obviously relationships and a reputation in that space. But where did you start? Like, how did you put together your pipeline? Um, uh, where did you know, where, what's that? Telephone, man. There's money in the, in the phone. And I, um, I was fortunate that um, we had a, my uncle and my father bought a database for us. It was called Relevant, where it would pull NCCI experience modifications and policy dates for businesses in Maryland. And we just, we just banged the phones out and we would use a sphere of influence. I would say, you know, I worked with such and such. I'm friends with such and such. 
And you know, if if you want to, if you, if you want to have, you know, I was using them as referral sources. That they really didn't necessarily give me the referral, but they told me I could use their name. And I took that bone and I ran. So sure. everybody I called, I'm like, I deal with ABC. They're yeah. like, oh, I know those guys. Well, let me come out and and, and, and talk with you. Let me learn more about your business. And and it, it was, seems like an industry where everybody people. knows each other. Yeah. Baltimore, especially. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the market, but it's, it, the joke is it's called Smaltimore, where they say you're like one of what is the connection? You're you know one of every seven people in Baltimore. It's like one of every two or three. Huh. So if you have a good sphere of influence, it helps. But there's nothing behind. There's no easy mix in picking up the phone and and making number calls, making numbers calls every single day. We were at a point where my my partner, my cousin, we were making 150, 200 calls a day. That is an excessive amount of calls. We are, apparently we are suckers for punishment, Dave. But I mean, I look at it and, and kudos, hat, tip of the hat to you. Like, there's no such thing as a no. It's just when it's going to happen. You know, like in your book, you know, you're like, I, I love no's. Every time I get a no, I'm closer to a yes. So I'm counting the no's. I'm not counting the yeses because I know by the law of large numbers, eventually somebody's going to play them. And if you make 200 a day and you set three, four, five, six appointments and you get a, you know, a, a 25% of that, you know, we're looking at is we're, we're banking that money. So that's yeah. what we did. It was just tough, hard, blue collar, East Baltimore, hard work, man. You know, I think that's something that's lost on a lot of people though. You know, that everybody is so enamored by the shiny objects with display marketing. Let me go buy Google ads. Let me advertise here. Let me advertise the way there, whatever. At the end of the day, the, the, the stuff that requires effort is always going to supersede the stuff that doesn't. Now, I'm not saying that my agency doesn't have an AdWords budget. We run AdWords on specific campaigns driven to landing pages because we like the data that we can get. But if I look back over the course of my entire career, literally every major account that I've ever written is because I called them on the phone or I walked in their front door. Yep. That's it. Mm-hmm. Now we have systems around how we do that to stack the deck in our favor. It's not like we're just randomly like in your situation, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to sit and do 150 calls a day. There's just no way that's going to happen. So I have to have some sort of a, a, a mix there. And that goes into what we talk about in understanding who your ideal prospect even is. I think a lot of agencies out there or producers specifically, if you were to come to, if you were to go to them and say, who's your ideal prospect? They can't even tell you who that is. Like they don't even, it's anybody. It's anybody with a heartbeat that buys insurance. That's my prospect. And I think that's where things go south. If you're in a niche like that, you've already basically pre-qualified that you can help the majority of the people that you're going to call. So you don't have to run through special filters. You just get your lists, bang them out. And that's how you qualify and pre-qualify is how things go on the phone. But the other thing I would tell you is, and I've heard this anytime people that, that that are in this industry and they're not successful, they're one hit wonders, man. That's it. They'll, they'll make that call and that's it. You, they don't get anybody on the call. They don't get an appointment. They're not going to direct mail them. They're not going to write them a handwritten note. They're not going to reach out via email. They're not going to drop by and see them in person. They're not going to try and follow back up on the phone again. And it's just like, I say it all the time. What do you expect somebody to be waiting in the lobby with a blank check and thank you for walking in so that you, they can finally buy from you? I mean, that's not how this works. If you want it, go get it. It's like a snow, like when I, when I, the caveat, it's, it's like snow, a snowball prospecting effect. And that's how I look at it as others towards, I mean, 
right now of my, I'm probably still making on a realistic base of probably 25 calls a day. Of those 25, 75% of them follow ups. Like you said, you don't make one call and stop. My list of 200, 250, 300, 500 prospects are all pre qualified. They're the folks that I want, you know, in my telling and recovery practice. Those guys are, you know, my ideal candidate is somebody that is an industry leading telling recovery operator that has a focus on profitability, safety, and employee protection. I mean, that's the, that's the most important thing. Their biggest assets, their their equipment and their employees, and you got to protect them. And, and those those guys are who we go after. And we honestly, at this point, Dave, a lot of what we do is meeting with current clients that meet that industry leading mold that we have and we allow we let they tell me who not to call i don't ask them who to call because they know i'm going to make the call i want them to look at a list and tell me who to stay away from because that just pre-qualified my list and now i'm rolling when calling people that are worthwhile and i think i kind of take a i take kind of like the reverse referral approach like we still work off a lot of referrals but i want to know who not to call i'm going to save my time there was a guy in training. I took a dynamics of selling class with Jeff Jalona. God rest his soul. He's a guy up at Selective Insurance. He was from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Awesome dude. He always said in all his classes, he always used the adage, it's an hourglass. Every single day, tip it over. Don't let anyone waste your sand. And that's what he always said. And I, and I, and that holds true to me. Like, I'm not going to waste my sand on somebody that isn't the, the ideal prospect to call. So there was a lot of there's a lot of heavy lifting in building that list on who you want to reach out to, um, but if you reach out to the right ones often enough at the right time, they want to talk. Well, and the thing is, you have to be having that activity. If you're not making calls, you're never going to get them at the right time because you're not going to get them at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's part of it. You know, I've said this thousands of times, but literally, if if all you did was go door to door and knock. And say, hey, even if you had no pitch, hi, I'm David and I sell insurance. Would you be willing to meet with me? Somebody's going to say yes. Somebody's <laughs> going to say yes. Like yeah. if you call on enough people, somebody's going to at least feel sorry for you or whatever right. else. And so that's what blows my mind is, you you know, again, you have to have that mentality of this is what it takes. And at this point in your career, it's a system for you, right? You know yeah. exactly what you're going to do. Kyle's very much the same way. He's a creature of habit. I, you could set your alarm clock off of what he's doing at any given time during a normal work week. But I, again, you know, I can't tell you the number of times where I'll watch an agent or or somebody will come to me and they'll say, "Hey, um, you know, what would you what would you have done here?" And I'll say, well, you know, tell me, walk me through what happened. They say, well, you know, I probably called them eight times. And I said, well, then why didn't you call them nine? You know, I mean, it's just if you have to work until you get a definite closure one way or the other. Otherwise, everybody's still a, a suspect in your in your pipeline at that point. And I do agree with you on the snowball thing. It, it, that's what's crazy. It, this is like unlike any other industry, really, um, as far as how quickly you can build that snowball. I mean, realtors operate off of referrals. Mortgage people operate off of referrals. There's a lot of salespeople who operate off of referrals. But if you get in, in your first three years, you just put your nose to the grindstone and get after it. You don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. You can live off of just who your book of business is and what they can refer you to. If you continue to do the same things that you've done and maybe scale it back a little because you have more responsibilities in managing a book, you're just going to be that much more successful. 
I mean, the difference from getting from zero to $100,000 in revenue a year is way harder than going from 100 to 250 in my no opinion. Doubt. Mm-hmm. No doubt. No doubt about it. And I, I think you're right. Like, I, I may be one of those people that are just, I, I, get, I, get, I get enjoyment out of cold calling and finding new, green, organic people to talk to on a daily basis. That is, that is, when people ask me, what, what do you like the most about your business and your, what you do? It's really that it's that that drive to find somebody else that I can bring value to on a favorable, regular basis, and that's what I do. I mean, I, that's what I get my most joy out of. Yeah, I love managing complex insurance programs, getting technical. I love all that. That, in my opinion, can be learned and taught. But the actual, we, my uncle, he coins the phrase Jurassic Park mentality. You have to be in the Jurassic Park mentality where you want to kill something and eat it every single day. And and, and that DNA, that is, is 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 I'm not sure you can learn that. I feel like you know you're you're born with 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 a certain alignment in your DNA structure that makes you that kind of person and and finding those people and guiding them to this rewarding feeling. Yeah, it's, it's such a rewarding feeling, you know, when that happens, when you're able to bring the value to somebody and can see a you know, a, a positive impact that you're having. At least for me, it is. I don't know. No, I mean, and look, we're, we're working on an account right now that is outside of the underwriting box for one of our monoline comp carriers. And it's one of those, it's one of those um, amusement places that has the slingshot in the, what was the thing? The Vomitron? Or, I mean, it's got, this Vomitron, is things, baby. Yeah, but I mean, it's one of those deals where, you know, one of our, one of Kyle's referral partners said, look, this is a lay down. If you can get the workers comp placed with somebody, we will get this deal and you will get every ounce of referrals you can possibly get from our office. And so he brought it to me and I looked at it. And I'm like, mm, I don't, you know, this is, here's who I would go to immediately for what I would consider to be higher hazard stuff. And then when we got down to the finish line and everybody's like, yeah, we don't really want to deal with this. I'm like, you know what? We've got a great relationship with this carrier. It's worth the wing and a prayer. Let's talk to them, see if they'll consider doing it, even though it's outside of their box. And sure enough, the dialogue started. But I mean, six months, man, at no, least it's been, longer it's than been, six it's months. Been, it's been almost a year. I was about to say, I mean, this is. So we have been chipping are, away. We have yeah. been chipping away. And part of the problem is COVID because we couldn't right. go out and have yeah. them do the the out the loss control visit. But that's true. And they were shut down for a period of time. But I mean, yesterday we had a call with the head of loss control for the carrier and the person that runs the company. And it was basically the last sort of hurdle before they go and physically visit, bless it, and give us a quote. And I feel like we just finished a marathon, man. I mean, I, I got I got a lot of stuff done yesterday, but, a, but out of everything that we've gotten done that was the thing that was the most fulfilling for me because mm-hmm. it showed that we weren't going to stop until we got to a yes or a no. Right. And then if it, you know, if it's a no, okay, well then we'll just keep working on it on the back burner to try and see if we can get something else done. But if it's a yes, we win and we're rewarded for that. And again, I mean, when you're in the middle market, yeah, there's been times where I've had months where I've put two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars of revenue on the books. It's just how it happened to fall. Yeah. Then there's also been three or four month spans where I haven't written a single account, mm-hmm. you know, 
do I quit? No, you just yeah. got to keep going that way. And I mean, that's that's the biggest thing, man. I, I agree with you. It's in your DNA that you have to want to win. You have to want to do whatever it takes to win. I mean, obviously remaining ethical and everything else, but you got to be willing to put in the work. And I like it truthfully. And, I, you know, there's probably some people that aren't going to appreciate me saying this, but I like going and beating other people. Dude, I like the win, man. That is, that is, it's that gamesmanship that wakes us up to do what we do every day. I love competition. When my clients, you know, get second opinions and, and market outside of my firm, I, I, that makes me rise to the occasion. I don't look at that or I don't go in defense mode. I go in attack mode at that point. And that's just the way that, the way that I'm wired and, and that I find that, you know, you guys are. When you're talking about, you know, I tell every prospect, I'm always like, I'm asking for an opportunity. My business is a war of attrition. That is my business. I know that I may not work with you this renewal cycle, the next renewal cycle, maybe the next one. You know, most of my large middle market accounts, my large, large, some of my largest accounts will be five years getting door. Five. And then we wrote it that year. And it's, it's blossomed and grown. I mean, it's been a good blessing, but... You know, a lot of people would have given up the first call and obviously they would have called the second, third or fourth year, mm-hmm. but eventually people need what the value that we bring. And we, if we can get in front of them, substantiate our value, substantiate their need on a favorable basis, that's when it all clicks. And you've got to be willing to put in the time and have the resiliency to get in front of them when it matters. Right. Did you play sports growing up? I did. What did you play? Played soccer, right? Yeah. Played, played soccer. I um, I, I played. A, you know, soccer was my main sport, but you know, I golf. I I I know that that sounds like not a competitive game, but I find when your biggest competitors yourself, it's not it competitive really if you're. It, it's not competitive if you're Carruthers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, soccer, baseball, golf. I mean, lacrosse, golf. We we, we played. My whole family. We, Played growing up, we put the, in the biggest games, the biggest slugfest were when we were playing each other like family members. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, my golf game is about as weak as my ability to recant a Dave Ramsey example for compound interest. Yeah. <laughs> I was just I was terrible too, but I just I guess I'm like I said, I'm I'm wired different. I'm a sucker for punishment. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's interesting, because I think that factors into it, too. If you have people that grew up in an environment where they played in in teams and played sports, regardless of whether they played even competitively all the way through high school and college or whatever, if, if you excelled, and you progressed through that, that those people tend to also be way more successful in what we do. Like, I can tell you, I know agencies that look for ex-athletes to recruit because they want the people who have a regimen, you know, a a workout regimen, a daily routine, and that competitive DNA. Um, So with that being said, when you get these people on the phone, I mean, what's the hook? How are you, how are you getting in? Is it an insurance play for you? Is it a risk management play for us? You know, it's usually the comp mod and we're talking total cost of risk. We get into indirect costs associated with claims, things like that. We're looking for any hook we can, you know, truthfully, it's like shooting fish in a barrel most of the time. So if we see that they've got low dollar indemnity claims on the loss runs, we're immediately going to cling to return to work. But if their mod is one or higher, my philosophy is they should be my client, period. If you're, if you're average or below average and you have a desire to get out of that range, 
then you absolutely should be working with my firm because we're not going to put up with that you know, ability, you know, that, that uh, accepting mediocrity. I'm interested in, in what your hook is when you, when you get these people on the horn. Oftentimes, if it's transportation related, I go right to their MCS 150 and DOT safer score. And I, and I call and say, I'd like to speak to the risk manager. I don't want to talk to the CFO or controller. I want to talk to the risk manager. I want to ask them, why are your DOT scores, you know, substandard? Why is your MCS 150 hasn't been filed yet? You know, where is your insurance professional helping you with these, these, these necessary algorithms that go into the underwriting process? You know, where are they? Are they present? And, and, and that, those questions normally, you know, spur the, well, they've never talked to me about it. Okay. Well, how about I come out in 25 minutes? I need 25 minutes of your time and I can show you how to update this information. I can show you how it factors into the underwriting process and it's a direct correlation to the spend that you have on your insurance program. We also look at what they do. Like, um, from a municipal solid waste standpoint, you know, I first, I pull up and see. I ask them, you know, do you guys have an updated copy of your MCS 90? You know, I ask certain compliance related um, questions like you do that that spurn the thought. Whoa! Like, am I? Am I? Are they? are planting a seed that's gonna that's gonna blossom into a witch, and then I'm gonna get out there, and I'm gonna. And then it, it's really like you said, it's shooting fish in a barrel, and and we look at it um, from another approach. Where for, from a construction standpoint, we look at obviously the mods, you know, that's a huge factor on workers comp or construction related risk. But we, we also look on buzzword coverages, you know, like do you guys have an updated, uh, comprehensive contractors pollution program? You know, let me, I just wanted to, just wanted to get some insight on that product that you have. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure in Florida, it's just as much, you know, of a relevant situation, but we're starting to see a lot of, a lot of those type requirements for general contractors and i and i i broke i broke Southern. i'm like for for a couple thousand bucks we can increase your likelihood to be awarded a contract because you have a better insurance and risk management protection plan in place now i look at it from what can i do for them and oftentimes i can help with compliance i can help with benchmarking and best practices or i can help them with revenue securing revenue for themselves and oftentimes it's increasing their bidding talent not only from lower insurance spend, but building up their program to where they are appealing to the general culture. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you call those people, how often do they actually have a risk manager? They'll tell you often, but in right. reality, in reality, it's like the AR person or it's the the superintendent. That uh, I mean, one of my partners in our in our office is um, OSHA ten, OSHA thirty, train and trainer, defensive driver train. He can train people. And we often go to them and say, are you reliant on yourself, your insurance carrier, or your insurance broker for your compliance-related needs? You know, where are you getting those services? And and, and just start the question. You know, a lot of times we'll go and say, who do I speak with about um, your, your, uh, OSHA, your, your OSHA compliance? Then I get the superintendent. And I build a I build a rapport with everyone along the process. So, you know, the, the as, as quick as the woman that answers the telephone or man that answers the telephone, I'm building a relationship with that person. Help me get to the next person. Help me get to the next person. It's like it's like skiing slalom. You, know, you got it. In order to get down the hill, you got to get the checkpoints. And, and we, we focus on that. And and a lot of times, Dave, to answer your question, they think they have it. They think they have a risk management department. They don't. And and to bring that element in is um. 
is, is immensely helpful for their organization. We show them look empirically for dollars and cents, whether it be modification changes through, uh, through um, ModMaster or going all the way down to potential fines they could have for outdated MCS 150s and SMS scoring that's, that's causing them to get pulled over. It's like the return to work program situation we were talking about the other day. You know, everybody says that they've got one or thinks that they have one, but, uh, you know, in reality, it's either non-existent or substandard. Oftentimes you see people that say, oh, yeah, we have a return to work program. All right, well, the guy can come back and we'll have him, you know, full paper clips or answer the phones. Can't do that. <laughs> He's not doing that. Well, then you, you, right. you don't have a return to work program. Right. Nothing formalized. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's low hanging fruit for us is people who have low dollar indemnity claims. When we look at the 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 loss runs, that's one of the first things I gravitate towards is I go down that indemnity column first to see if there's anything crazy. I've seen indemnity claims put on policies that are like literally one hundred dollars, one hundred and fifty bucks of indemnity. It's like, why? Why is this even here? Do you not? Has anybody ever taken the time to explain the split point to you and how all of this factors? In? I mean, again, it, you know, nothing to do with insurance, right? I mean, it, it is. It's the root cause of why you ultimately pay more premium. But it's a difference between understanding what causes that problem versus just going around and trying to market your way out of it by getting better quotes, because at some point, that experience catches up with you. You know, if you don't have the programs in place, if you haven't dealt with why you should have return to work, at some point you're going to run out of carriers. You know, your mod's going to get inflated higher than what it needs to be, and you can't quote your way out of a problem. So for one us, our, my, one of our largest accounts in our in our firm, my partner, um, that's exactly what he did. He's like, I'm going to show you with pulling out these indemnity claims with a $1,500 policy deductible, what it would do to your experience modification and how much money that would translate in over the last three years. And if I can show you, we, we agree to an, uh, an amount. If I can show you that, you're going to sign up agent of record now. And it was done and he did it within three days and he had three, 35 grand of revenue. And it was just, those aren't insured. That's not quoting anything. <laughs> you know, that's not, in, that's not even in, really, like you said, it's not even an insurance discussion. It's not a marketplace discussion. It's an, it's a broker competency discussion. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about numbers. And one of the things I like about the mod is the fact they they really can't argue with it. I mean, you, you know, obviously we want to go in, we want to validate that it's accurate because there's plenty of them that come out that are not accurate when they're calculated due to bad data in or whatever else. But, you know, if you go in and you, you're talking to a business owner and they want to argue with you about their mod, it's like, dude, it's like my kids arguing with me about their report card. You know, it's done. It's already It's already published. This is what it is. And it's a result of this behavior right here that you're displaying right now that's causing the issue. I can tell you, man, um, even the people that we see that do ModMaster, a lot, the, 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 the percentage of them that actually use it in what I would say is the most effective way is so small that we literally never compete against anybody who's doing what we do. If I go in and I see the low dollar indemnity claims, it takes me literally just a minute or two to go back, reclassify it as med only, pop the indemnity out, calculate how much they would have paid if they bankrolled that out of payroll or the carrier invoiced them for the indemnity, and then run the second mod master and show them the spread. 
if you would have paid this much right now up front or, or had the return to work program and say you could have not had these this indemnity on your claim, this is what your mod would have been. But instead, here's where it is accurately. There's a 30 point difference there and you're spending a half a million dollars a year on premium. That's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Why? Because you didn't want to pay like a thousand or two out of pocket. And oh, by the way, that's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars this year and next year and next year. This is almost a half a million dollar discussion now. Not not one bit of that has to do with can I quote your business? And truthfully, we don't quote business. We're not going to come in and offer to quote your business and trying to try and win you over because we do a real good job of quoting. That's not right. what's going to happen. We're going to come in and demonstrate to you why you should hire us from a business standpoint and talk about all of the other things that are implicated or are, are, are affecting your financial statements. And we're going to ask you to hire us to clean those up. And if you want to know how we get paid, the insurance placements, the funding mechanism for us to do all of this work that we talked about that you really need to have done. Let's just call it what it is. Let's just let's just say insurance is a level playing field. I can place insurance just as good as another agency can. I can construct the program. I can negotiate with underwriters. What you're missing is all of this that we talked about for 45 minutes. And if you want this, I get this. If you don't want me to have this, I'm not going to rent my platform to another agency to continue to place your insurance. I, I don't do fee for service to make other agencies look good on accounts. That's awesome. I mean, we, we take that. That, that's the approach that's necessary to be successful in this industry. And, and I think that if you look at it from an insurance perspective, there's only three things you can do with risk. You can transfer it to an insurance company, you can assume it, or you can avoid it. So there's a lot of mechanisms that we bring to the table where we take the avoidance of risk approach, where we help businesses restructure their business processes to minimize their exposure to risk that they would otherwise transfer to an insurance company. So there's, there's a lot of different approaches you can take. It's not always pushing product. It's not always, and I see this all the time, you know, you sit down and you're looking at a competitor's proposal where, you know, they have just so many things and recommendations that don't apply to the client that because they didn't ask the question, that they don't understand the true operating protocols that's in place with that organization where insurance is just one best. And until when you're quoting, it's 100% of the game, right? Like you're competing, you're putting all that weight on that eight and a half by 11 insurance contract. It's important, but it's 33 and a third percent of the entire program of transferring, avoiding, and transferring, assuming, and avoiding. So we got to take that approach too, you know, from an insurance perspective. We're just, we're, like you said, the funding mechanism of our compensation one facet of an entire program that needs to be managed. Well, I think people miss the fact too, that if you do business that way, you actually build better relationships with your underwriters as well. And, you know, when you're dealing with an underwriter, who's used to having, you know, when some of these regional or national firms that are constantly shotgunning the market every year, when you go to them and 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 you let them know that your this business is already closed, I just need you to structure the program and this is the pricing we need. That doesn't resonate with them. But if you're selling on agent of record letter and you're delivering value, when it comes time to place the insurance, you're really the decision maker. 
It's you're you're handling that whole process. You know, in the first year, we'll we'll do market uh, due diligence in the marketplace. We ask our client, our prospects. You know, in the larger middle market ones, you're going to have to commit for three years. I want you to give me your verbal that once we place this, we're not going to market next year. We're not going to market the following year because truthfully, we're relying on the fact that the carrier is going to do this based on our reputation because the stuff we take to them typically has hair on it. And so we want that commitment to where they're not going to go have one really good year. And then somebody who wasn't really uh, willing to quote comes in and buys the business the next year. It it leaves us hanging out to dry, you, you know, leaves our carrier partner hanging out to dry. If you're selling on agent, a record letter and that, that business is already closed, right? I mean, it's closed for your firm. You sell yourself first, then you worry about the insurance piece. I, I would much rather go in and sell myself. I'm going to win that contest way more than I'm going to lose it. If I'm relying on what happens if I go to market and quote, I have really diminished my ability to succeed. And some of that has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with that prospect's reputation in the insurance community because they've shopped every year for the last 10 years and half the underwriting community that could have helped them doesn't have an interest because they never win the account. Yeah, you backed yourself into a corner at that point. I mean, you've got no other options. Bottom of the pile. We also take out the, uh, and then a lot of times we'll we'll take um, for, we we have the same concept. Every three years, if it's warrants, we'll go to market. Um, We also are very ingrained and involved in the claims management process for our large accounts. As much so as getting on conference calls with subrogation attorneys, you know, getting involved in coordinating um, claims management for if, if an attorney gets counsel, you know, getting involved and in finding our, you know, our nurse case manager, getting them in touch quickly with the injured worker, with the with the attorney, with any uh, representation they have, you know, getting ingrained in that. And we also, on a renewal basis, oftentimes we will print where we use um, Epic, Applied Epic, and we will print every single, we will print a spreadsheet of every single touch and service provided on that client per year to show them. We get down to the point where we say, we will show you the value of what we bring. If we value our time at $250 an hour and we're touching your account 300 times a year, whether it be from a certificate, an auto change, auto ID distribution, an endorsement, anything of that nature. And we show that to the policyholder for what the revenue that we're making off the insurance revenue, they're getting a hell of a deal. You know, they're getting they're getting the deal of the century. They've just diminished something. It could be 250 an hour based on what we're pushing down to, you know, 20, 30, or 40 bucks, depending on the amount of touches. And we just we try to get away from the rat race of the insurance contract has all the value. It has all the value at the time of the claim. But it has no value until you engage it. No, I, I I say that exact same thing every time. Insurance brings no value to the table unless you need it. Otherwise, it just sits in a binder and collects dust behind your desk until next year when you renew. You know, I think that the agency world has done a disservice because of how people perceive us. You know, you talked about wanting to be an attorney. I talked about wanting to be an attorney. There's a reason why kids don't want to be insurance agents when they grow up. It's not perceived to be a sexy occupation. And I think that we are to blame for that largely because 
we don't sell value. And I'd say we collectively, we, my firm sells value, your firm sells value. But when you look at it, you're not going to go to an attorney who bills at three, $400 an hour and then say, well, I'm going to go talk to your competition too. And then somebody's going to come in and say, oh yeah, well, I'll do the deal for 150 bucks. Is that really who, would, would you even hire that attorney at that point that was going to, that was going to represent you that way? Right. And I think that until we get away, from, yeah, until we get away from whoring ourselves out over price, we're always going to be perceived that way. And to me, I say it all the time. You know, it's the difference between going in and being a trusted advisor and being an insurance salesperson, period. You're focused on a product if you're selling insurance. You're solving problems if you're a trusted advisor. One of those problems very well may be insurance premium, but you have to look at the things that are contributing that, contributing to that to, to get to where you need to be. And again, it goes back to something that I say all the time. We don't listen, man. People don't know how to ask a question. And listen, they're so worried about formulating their rebuttal or their response, they don't take the time to absorb what the other person is wanting you to hear from them. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the gold is in any of these meetings. I can be as prepared as anybody walking in. But if I allow the research that I have done on that prospect to predetermine my answers to questions, I've done myself a disservice by not allowing them to tell me what they want me to know, not what I find on the internet. Right. And I mean, I feel like uh, maybe it's different for you, but when I go into appointments and I've played it out in my head, it almost never goes like I've played it out in my head. Like you always have to call an audible. And always. And, yeah. So you use an analogy about the attorney. I, depending upon the clientele, which I'm sitting in front of, I always say, would you hire a proctologist to give you a lot? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're going to hire a nurse. And yeah. I said that. I said really that. I want to look at it from that perspective. Like, you can get somebody to come and bid your insurance. You can't get something. Like, do you do you have a new account, a CPA over here file your taxes? Yep. The resounding answer is no. I've had my CPA for years. You should have your insurance broker for years if they're do, truly doing the job for you. And like you said, yep. you're, we're not selling anything. We're not we're, we're, we're not selling a tangible good. I'm not selling a car, but insurance agents get put into the slimy used car salesman bit. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. our industry has has over time has been equated to a tweed jacket with arm patches, used car salesman, banging your head against the wall to buy the 98 Kia with 400,000 miles. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to be that guy. You know, I, I don't want to be that guy. So, but through uh, you know, your agencies and our and our agency and the way in which that we 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 we, we kind of take that and turn it over and how insurance can be a benefit. How can it be a, a way to meet the goals and aspirations of clients in which we serve? And and when we can turn it ass over tin cup and, and and really present it that way, that's when we're not going to be, you know, net riders. That's how we yeah. do it. That's exactly the guy I think of every time too. Listen, we're bumping up on time. Yeah. I've got to get out of here because I've got a call after. Brad, I appreciate you being on. Tell them where they can find you if people want to talk more about Middle Market Shop with you. Now, RA Insurance, we are located in Hunt Valley, Maryland, about 15 miles north of Baltimore City Line. Number is 800-564-0169. I'm at extension 109. Email is brad at ra risk. 
Awesome, man. I could have talked for two hours with you today. We'll definitely have you back on in the future because I think we have a lot more that we can cover that people will benefit from if they're willing to do what? Listen, people. That's the word of the year. Listen, listen, listen. All right, guys. Brad, thanks again, man. Have a great weekend. If you get to go out, hit them straight today. Uh, you don't there know. You See you, guys. <laughs> See you, See man. You. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. 